Off the final weekend in February. Yes, that is correct. It's about to be March. We are ready to recap everything that went on, not only in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but on Sunday as we release this podcast, we have a winner in the Fury versus Paul pay-per-view, and it wasn't Jake Paul. We're ready to talk all about it. Uh, thank you for finding us. It's the Fight Freaks Unite recap. He is our insider from Fight Freaks United Substack, as well as BigFightWeekend.com. Love me some Dan Rayfield, especially when we have some uh, some action and some big-time results like we had this weekend. How are we feeling as we come off of a, of a final weekend in February that has plenty to talk about? Absolutely, TJ. Look, it was a it was a good fight between Jake Paul and Tommy Fury, which we'll get to. Um, anybody that bought that fight with higher expectations than what we got was probably off in fantasy land. I think that that fight that we saw was probably about as good as we could have possibly expected from that level of a fight. So tip of the hat to the two guys for putting on a pretty good show. Um, and uh, we had a hell of a fight on Saturday night on Showtime, which we'll talk about with uh, Matias and Ponce. Uh, tremendous action fight, kind of a disappointing ending, which we'll talk about. But uh, overall, that was a that was a very very good fight. And uh, as I said on the preview, I love it when the two main shows of the weekend don't in any way conflict. Everybody could just chill and watch Saturday night mm-hmm. on the Showtime card. And then reconvene Saturday, uh, Sunday afternoon if you're in the United States for uh, the pay-per-view for the Jake Paul and Tommy Fury fight, which also had an outstanding uh, world title fight on the undercard between uh, uh, Makabu and uh, Badu Jack. And uh, we'll talk all about it. Yep, we're ready to recap all of it. Again, thank you for finding us, however you've done so. Social media link off of Dan's Substack directly, off of BigFightWeekend.com. Make sure you're following, subscribing, because once again, we go into the weekend with the Big Fight Weekend preview, usually out by Friday morning, overnight Thursday into Friday, and then we come off the weekend with uh, the recap, the Fight Freaks Unite recap, usually out by the middle of the night Monday, depending on our schedules. Now, that may get a little crazier, because not uh, not just Dan being busy, but I start getting busy in March with college basketball, with travel, with the NCAA tournament. But peeps, we are pledging to you, you will not do without Rayfield. You will not do without Dan's inside of college. You're going to get that. Or Reeves, but not not so much for me. I'm just here to be your caddy. I'm You're like Tiger, and I'm handing you the nine iron. So uh, you will not be without Rayfield for very long on Monday if it is delayed. But typically, we've got people in a good groove, a preview into the weekend, and uh, recap off the weekend. And thank you again to the audience. It continues to grow. Thank you to the audience that finds us on the Bet US Boxing Show on Fridays because that had really good audience last week. We're doing things here. And we thank the peeps uh, for finding us. And I, I know you guys appreciate it. We appreciate you. So with that, let's get into it. Showtime PBC uh, main event saw uh, an entertaining fight from the jump. And you said this, look out from the jump that these guys are going to be ready to throw. And they were between Subriel Matias and uh, Jeremiah Ponce for the 140-pound vacant IBF title. And it ends up being a stoppage after round five, but action-packed. All right, let's begin there and then with the rest of the card. But thoughts on it, Dan, as Matias becomes a world champ for the first time? Listen, it was a hell of a fight. Uh it was not unexpected. Like you said, we talked about it. Uh, I, I could have guessed that this would going to be a terrific fight from the moment that it was uh, on the schedule, even, even before that, when it was first ordered by the IBF. Remember, Ponce was supposed to be the mandatory for Josh Taylor. Uh, he wasn't ducking Ponce, but he went to a different direction to try to make the rematch with Catterell, which, of course, got sideways. That's a whole different story. In any event, the titles became vacant. Ponce uh, then was ordered to fight Matias, who was the next available challenger, uh, a worthy title challenger in any event. And uh, they put on a great fight. 
Um, the only thing that was unfortunate was it was sort of a very abrupt and very kind of disappointing the way that it ended. You know, to me, there's sort of like a happy meeting between what happened in the Lee Wood Lara fight where it felt like maybe the fight should have gone a few more. At least I did that. It should have gone a little bit longer to the end of that round, if possible. And this one where he did get to the end of the round and then very abruptly his uh, trainer stopped the fight uh, after round five. Now, he had gotten knocked down in the fifth round, but it was not like an absolutely devastating knockdown. I mean, it wouldn't rank in the top thousand knockdowns I've ever seen. So it was sort of a, I was thinking about both of those fights as I saw that fight come to a conclusion. I was sort of like, I was left a little bit disappointed on the, the like, what's the old stick in the, in the, in the three bears uh, uh, story. Like it, it's the, the soup is not too hot or it's too cold or it's just right. Like the stoppage in the Lara may wasn't quite right. Was maybe a little too soon. You're quoting too Goldilocks on Goldilocks, the podcast. So that one was a little bears. too quick. Uh, the one with uh, Matias and Ponce was maybe a little a little too quick. The other one was a little too soon. I need one that's just right. Yeah, and I, I just can't get that. But but be that as it may, it was a tremendous fight. Uh, I kind of thought Ponce fought the wrong fight, which cost him big time. He came out like a hundred miles an hour. Uh, trying to just knock uh, Matias's block off in the first round, and he had a lot of success. And it kind of looked like, uh, as I wrote in my piece about the fight, that kind of Matias looked like he was sort of shell shocked because the amount of punches that he was being that would that that Ponce was throwing and landing uh, was highly unusual for the type of style that Ponce has. He basically tried to fight the Matias style, which is stand in his chest and go punch for punch with the guy that was the bigger puncher. Now, it worked in round one, but the question was, oh, my God, can he possibly continue this for any length of time? Certainly, if it got into the second half of the fight, now you've expended so much energy, and even though you've landed a lot of shots, you're paying for it because you're getting hit back. Uh, I thought Matias did an excellent job of making it through round one, collecting himself, not that he was hurt bad or anything like that, but taking care of himself in the corner, taking a deep breath, like the corner was sort of just telling him, relax. He came out and he started doing his thing in the second round. And Ponce started slowly but surely exactly what I suspected was you can't keep up that pace uh, for, for that long. And he started, as he started to slow down and, and Matias kind of got his legs under him a little bit and started to crank up the, the, the big punches. And eventually he started to take over the fight. He wore him down. He did score a big knockdown in the fifth round late. Um, Ponce got up. It didn't seem like he was hurt really too bad at all. Not, I shouldn't even say like badly hurt. I don't think he was really hurt. I thought it was, no. it was a good knockdown, but not he was anything. fine. He was yeah. fine sitting there looking at his corner, looking at the ref. And it was not, as you said earlier, like the Lee Wood situation where he'd hit his head on the canvas after the knockdown. Right. He right, went right. down on his backside from getting hit uh, in the ribs, got hit a couple of times. Before we get back to the knockdown and, and if there is some controversy on his corner pulling the plug, uh, he landed. Ponce, we're talking about 28 power punches in the first round. I dare say you can watch a lot of championship fights where fighters don't land 10 power punches in the first round. He landed 28 of them, head and body. So that was tremendous output. Um, but just, then, couldn't keep it, just keep it going, you know. But just from can't then keep on, going. Matias got inside, worked him to the body, scoring with the combinations. Do you think uh, in this in in this case, you know, I've heard the cliche before: don't fight the whole fight in the first round. Did he mostly fight the whole fight in the first round? In your opinion, I think he's. Part? I think he probably did. Basically, he kind of came out and said, "You know what? It's going to be kill or die." And you know, and to use uh, that expression, uh, and that's sort of what happened. I mean, it, he didn't get knocked. You know, it didn't end in the first round, but mm -hmm. he sort of came out thinking, "I'm just going to go for it and see what I can get," and uh, roll the dice. And it didn't work out for him because, again, there was no possible way he was going to be able to continue that level of the pace throughout the fight 
And once Matias got out of round one, I kind of figured he would settle down a little bit. And even Matias in the post fight admitted this and said so because he was asked about that first round. He says, look, I'm a guy that's pretty tentative the first four rounds. You know, he likes to feel like the guy, see what he's got before he really gets revved up. A lot of some fighters are like that, slow starters. Other guys can start more quickly, but uh, that's the style Matias fights in. So I would say to any future challenger or future opponent, if you're going to get this guy, you know, go get him as early as you can. Now, there's a difference between trying to get him in round one by throwing a gazillion punches and completely, uh, you know, wrecking your game plan for any a game plan that could could work for any length of time as opposed to just going out there and being very passive. You kind of got to find the happy medium. Now, Matias is not invincible. I know he looked awesome the way he came back and was able to, to take Ponce out, but he does have a loss to a very average fighter in Petros Ananian. Now, he did the, did uh, avenge that by a knockout uh, after they fought, but he is not invincible, but nobody is really – there's going to be a lot of guys that are not going to want to fight this guy because he's a very powerful puncher. He obviously can take a good shot. All you got to do is watch that first round. And uh, he does have that that inner drive. It feels like, you know, he's had a, an up-and-down kind of life. But in boxing now, he's gotten to the top of the mountain as a, as a world champion. And, uh, you know, from where he came from before boxing when he was in jail, where he was uh, a few years ago after the death of his opponent, Maxim Dadashev, and uh, not knowing how he was going to react to that, to then, you know, a few years later uh, having this victory and now having a world title. You know, there's something to be said for that story. That's the kind of story only boxing can produce. Well, we love that. Uh, and, and just a couple of more numbers that kind of back this up. Uh, Matias from the CompuBox stats landed 33 power shots in the fifth and final round. And in the last two rounds, according to CompuBox, outlanded Ponce in total punches 71 to 41. So the fourth and the fifth round, he landed 71 shots on Ponce. And eventually it leads to the stoppage. All right. So we go back to that. And in between rounds, uh, on the Showtime broadcast, Al Bernstein was breaking down the knockdown when suddenly the fight's over. And they start saying, hey, the, the bell rings, the fight is over. I was genuinely surprised that sure. for a you know for a minute rest in between. Here we go back to what we discussed seven days ago about Lee Wood. You take him, you take a minute, and then let's see if you're better. And in this case, his corner didn't like, I guess, what they saw, but that it's puzzling, and we don't have all the information, do we? On uh, plus, it's in a different language. What was the discussion in the corner on his? There was no real thing with you, or what? No, it, it just there, was weird. There was no real discussion. If you listen to uh, uh Felix de Jesus, mm -hmm. who does the translation for Showtime, there was no real discussion. He kind of looked at Ponce and basically decided that was a wrap and called wow. the fight. And I mean, you know whether you believe him or not in the post-fight interview that Ponce did again, translated said that his, I believe I'm, I'm paraphrasing what, what the quote was. He said, my corner knows me better than me. Um, I wanted to continue. So I guess in that case, like my, my thing about the whole business with Lee Wood and Lara was I felt like there was not going to be another punch thrown in the round, or if there was, it was not going to be, you know, was the fight, the round's going to be over. He's going to go back to the corner at which point now you allow your trainer to assess you and to decide whether you think the fight should go on. So he didn't, you know, Ben Davison did not do that in the case of Lee Wood. In the case of what happened with uh, Ponce, I, I can't really argue with the trainer because the trainer was there looking at him. He did let him get out of the round after the knockdown. He didn't immediately throw the towel in. And it was his decision to stop the fight. So while from the outside, it looked a little bit unusual. It was surprising, certainly disappointing. If the trainer makes that call, 
I'm not going to generally argue, especially when he's got back to the corner, he's had a chance to check him out. Uh, as, as Ponce said, his corner knows him better than he knows. He knows himself. He certainly knows him a lot better than you or I, but it, it was sort of the, the juxtaposition seven days after what happened with Lee Wood and, and in the Lara fight, you know, I didn't love the stoppage, but again, the trainers, there standing there looking in his eyes. It was different than when, you know, the trainers on the outside of the ring. And, and by the way, here's the other difference, by the way, Ponce at that point of the fight, he's taking a lot of shots and he's losing clearly at mm -hmm. that stage of the fight mm -hmm. in the Lee Wood fight. He's the reigning champion and he's winning the fight. Obviously. Amen. So there's a difference there in the stoppages. So, but again, for five rounds, it was a tremendous fight. Matias came on, as you said, uh, you mentioned the punch stats in rounds four and five. It was Matias himself who said he's a start, a slow start. He doesn't really get revved up till about four, you know, around four or five rounds. So, you know, it's a it's a good win for him. It was a really good fight. I wish it would have gone maybe a little bit longer, but I can't complain about it. It was a it was a worthy fight. And now the thing I love about it, by the way, I know you're going to ask me what's next for Matias. You didn't even let me. I what's know. Next, what's next for Matias? Go. I mean, I don't think this is necessarily what will be the next fight, but what I did love was he did something that there's nobody in boxing that ever does. He called out the WBC champion, Regis Progre, who won that title back in November. And uh, he said that in the pre-fight, and he said it in the post-fight. He based on him paraphrasing again. He's like, he talks a lot. I want to find out which one of us is crazier, you know, me or Regis Progre. <laughs> and the thing I loved about it also was that after he made that call out, uh, Progre, who's a cool guy, he went on Twitter and said, you know, a little quote tweet with uh, the, the Showtime uh, playing back the comment about Regis. Um, saying, yeah, like, you know, I hope to see you down, you know, hope to see you soon or something like that. You know, Regis is not a guy that's ever ducking fighters. Uh, you know, he wasn't the one that, that walked away from these different title fights or these big matchups. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that the two fighters would take that fight in a heartbeat. And by the way, let me tell you, Regis Progan, Sabiro Matias, that would be one hell of a fight. And what's the old saying? Fights make fights. So when mm -hmm. Matias gets that kind of win, grabs the title, and you already know the type of fights that Regis Progray can make, uh, I dare say, uh, and this was with all due respect to the other top-notch guys in the 140-pound division, whether you want to talk about Josh Taylor or Tifima Lopez or now, you know, the uh, it'll, they'll be technically junior welterweights, Ryan Garcia and and Gervonta Tank Davis, et cetera, uh, for pure, unadulterated violence <laughs> and drama I think Matias and Progress would be probably the best fight you can make in that weight class right now. I would love to see it. Let's see what happens on the realism meter on where that one uh, uh, will end up. It's not as, I mean, on, on a far-fetched level, if you were going to grade it as how far-fetched is it from it's impossible to like, you know, it's, it's you know, easily makeable. I would say that a fight between Matias and Regis is not outlandish. And I say that because of the following. Matias is obviously associated now with PBC. Regis Progre is in a little bit of a gray area right now. I believe his, his, his uh, promotional situation is going to be in limbo. He had been with Probellum. Probellum is now out of business. They are in the process of selling uh, some of their assets, I'm not, you know, whatever they have, to this new outfit, Disrupt. And Regis Progre's contract is one of those. Now, I don't know what the contract says, if uh, they're allowed to assign it. And mm -hmm. I also know that the Regis people would take a look at that and say there's probably different things that Probellum uh, breached that were not cured, that would allow them to have an out potentially, or they could maybe just make a straight deal. My point is, he's not affiliated with a broadcaster. You know, he did his last fight, granted it was a purse bid on the, on the uh, Marv Nation pay-per-view that they promoted with Legends Entertainment. Uh, so 
that's a fight that if you're like a Showtime, for example, which is mm-hmm. where Regis Prograde grew up as a, you know, once he became like a, he started out on Showbox and and has appeared on Show, uh, Showtime a few times. I think that would possibly be a fight that could actually get made. We'll see. All right. Uh, rest of that card, we saw Jamal Shango James from Minneapolis uh, battle on and win. Paul Meta, the opponent, was very durable, very tough. It was quite a fight. That was the co-feature. And also Elvis Rodriguez won the opening fight uh, of the night, which had a hilarious scorecard. Hilarious in air quotes. Uh, and it, all right, your uh, your recap of the rest of that card, please. Well, Jamal James has come off a 16-month layoff. Uh, after having lost his WBA secondary title uh, to Batayev in a, in a, you know, he got kind of beat up in that fight a little bit. But Jamal is, is a tough competitor. He he earned his shot when he got those types of fights. He had faced, uh, you know, a bunch of good quality guys and defeated them. The thing about Jamal is this. I think he's at a, he, he's reached the level that he's at. Like he does, he brings a good crowd to Minnesota, to that armory. He's a Minneapolis guy. I've had a chance to interview him a few times, met him a couple times. Super nice guy like real community oriented, like not, not easy guy to root for. You know what I mean? He's like a, just a, he's a humble kind of gentleman type of guy. And he's a pretty good fighter. I don't look at him as like one of the elites of the welterweight division, but what he will do is no matter who you are in that weight class, he's going to give you a tough night. Probably he's going to make you work for your win. And he's in a position right now, getting a victory like he did against Palmetto, which was, you know, fairly one-sided on the scorecards. Uh, and even though it was one-sided, you know, he was humble enough to say that, you know, he could have been a lot better. He wasn't feeling so great. He has contracted COVID like three times since all this uh, craziness mm-hmm. with the pandemic has begun. So uh, he can definitely be better. I don't know how much better he can be. What, what he can be, though, is the type of guy that can get another shot just by keeping on working hard. And also, he's going to be a guy that if you want to become a welterweight champion or become a star or become uh, an elite fighter in that weight class, you got to go through a guy like him. So, and I don't, this is not a negative. I don't, I'm not saying he's a stepping stone, but you got to beat a guy like that to get to the promised land. If you can beat a Jamal James, you probably have a chance to get to a much higher level in the weight class. He put on a good fight. Good for him coming off that layoff, a little rusty, but uh, uh, Palmetta durable, tough as nails, uh, but really kind of outclassed if you want to be honest. And again, Showtime does an amazing job with all their production uh, for these fights. And they had the in-corner audio where James, like what, Dan, after like the sixth round, the fifth or sixth round, the trainer's looking at him saying, what? And he said, I'm all effed up. You know, I don't say that word. And he's referring to he he still is feeling the effects of having COVID-19 multiple times. And as that fight wore on, it was a it was affecting, I guess, his stamina affecting his output, being able to to do what he wanted to do. I thought that was, wow, that was some great stuff, great insight that we got there. He was really struggling with that in a fight that he's winning. I think he's got doubt in his own head of, can I make it through 10 rounds here physically? Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. And I'm going to tell you, like I said, Jamal James is a very easy guy to root for. If you spend three minutes, two minutes, one minute Mm -hmm. talking to the guy, but he's the kind of guy that when he was coming up, nobody expected anything from him. He was just a, a just an unassuming Minnesota welterweight, not exactly known for producing the top fighters in the world. He suffered a 10-round loss in 2016 to Ordenis Ugas. We know how good Ugas became. Mm-hmm. He won a world title, you know, gave guys tough fights all along, beat Manny Pacquiao, etc. And so since that loss in 2016, the only other loss that Jamal has taken was in the title fight where he lost that secondary belt against Batayev in 2021. But I just called up his record. Here's a few of the guys he beat. 
Jojo Dan, former world title challenger, Diego Chavez, who was a, a two good top fighter for several years. Abel Ramos, he defeated. That was a good win for him. He beat Antonio DeMarco, who was a title holder in the lightweight division. He beat Thomas DeLorme, who was the world title challenger, who fought you know, a lot of good opponents. Not maybe the elite, elite guys, but those are that all together. That's a pretty good group of vin of victories. That that's not because you have a big backing or you were an Olympian or you have some glossy record that gets you in people's rankings. That's by getting your rear end in the ring and winning the fights against good quality opponents and doing it not just once or twice, but you know, stringing together over the course of a couple of years, you know, four or five of those good quality wins. Uh, met his match against Batayev. And, uh, you know, on the rebound against Palmetta, I suspect he'll get some other kind of opportunity. Um, you know, good luck to him. I like Jamal James. He's a, he's a great guy and, and uh, uh, maybe uh, not not the most uh, boisterous or or star power kind of guy with a ton of charisma. The guy can fight, man. He can fight. And he's a fan favorite in Minneapolis where he's from. And that place was rocking uh, with a lot of his people that were in there. And I and back to it, I thought it was great advice in the corner where the trainer was looking at him and said, you need to relax. You need to breathe. He was doing good psychology there to get his guy through. Let's get through the next round. Let's get some more positive reinforcement and get through the next round. Because if you, if you're winning, but you can't go on mentally, you've, you've checked out, you're going to lose the fight. And then we were almost back at, at uh, the starting point again, we're back at, at, um, at the clean slate if you don't win this fight. So that was good stuff. All right, and then uh, just real quick to wrap it, we will get to Jake Paul and Tommy Fury. That's on deck. But Elvis Rodriguez was also a winner on Showtime. Anything from you on that? Well, I mean, that was that was Elvis Rodriguez, uh, the Freddie Roach-trained Dominican uh, against Joseph Adornio. These were two guys that at one time were both considered very top-level blue-chip kind of prospects. Uh, they suffered losses. Maybe they didn't look so good. Uh, Rodriguez had a draw. You know, both of them actually had been signed by top rank. And both of them got released by top rank. And when I watched the fight on Saturday, it showed me that top rank made the right decision because in my humble estimation, again, they're good fighters. I'm not like saying they're horrible or they're, you know, not worth to watch or anything like that. They just don't seem, if you're top ranking, you've got, you know, 80 guys under contract and you got to find spaces for everybody. You kind of have seen what you're going to see from these guys. And it was their opinion that these are not guys who are going to the world championship level or are not going to be necessarily big star ticket sellers, that type of thing, uh, that, you know, thank you and goodbye. Uh, now, that said, I still think that Elvis Rodriguez, even though it was a bad, it was, let's be honest, it was a bad fight. It was not an entertaining fight at all. It was kind of sucky. Uh, Adorno did get knocked down twice, but they weren't like big knockdowns. The second knockdown was very questionable in the in the uh, late going. I think it was in the last round. Um, Elvis, though, to me, I still think he can maybe do something. I'm not saying he's going to be the star that they try to make him out to be. But uh, he's, he definitely has some talent. He's got good power. He's got good fundamentals. Um, you know, so I, I, would, I would say for me, the jury is still out. I still think there's a chance that he could become something more than he is at the moment. And I wish him good luck. With Adorno, while I certainly wish him good luck also, I, I look at Adorno and I just don't see a guy that's going to the next level. And I mean, that's just my honest opinion. Again, it's nothing against the fighter. Uh, I just don't see the spark. Uh, I know that there was a lot of problems when he was at top rank because he was not disciplined. They felt um, he's fighting now at 140 pounds. He was probably at his best when he frankly was at 130 pounds um, at the, at the reality, the realities, he probably should be at 135 pounds. Um, you know, whatever your opinion is about that. So, you know, I don't think he's destined for greatness. Elvis Rodriguez, the jury is out. Uh, I tend to think maybe not, but I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, maybe there's a chance. Um, so that was sort of like the two, uh, 
one-time top prospects fighting to keep themselves somewhat relevant. Uh, Elvis Rodriguez was clearly the winner of the fight. Uh, they did call it a majority decision, which kind of surprised me with the one of the judges scoring that 94 to 94. And keep in mind, by the way, DJ, that 94-94 was with Elvis scoring two knockdowns, which means without the knockdowns, he's at during your winning, lost on that card. Right. Um, and so that was that. I mean, I don't even know what to say after that. I mean, Adorno, you know, he'll, I would think he's the kind of guy, if he's going to be on some kind of broadcast down the road, you may see him, let's say on a showtime, let's say if he was with PBC, but he's not with them. But if he was on there, he'd be the guy that's on one of the YouTube fights. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Elvis, you know, if he, if he wants to step up and fight a, a top level guy, He's going to have some trouble. I'm not sure he's ready for that yet. You know, back to the drawing board and see what they want to do. I mean, he's trained presently by Freddie Roach. Um, he's got a lot of talent, but he's got to harness it. It's the thing. Got to put it together. All right. We've waited long enough for Sunday. We go chronologically Saturday into Sunday. And it is over and done with, as you and I uh, tape on Sunday evening into Monday morning when we release the podcast, Tommy Fury has surprised both of us because we both on the Bet US Boxing Show made the prediction we thought this was Jake Paul knockout. Not the case. Tommy Fury gets a split decision win in the Cruiserweight main event from Queensbury Promotions and MVP Promotions in Saudi Arabia. Validates his being there. Humbles Jake Paul in the process. I have a couple of thoughts, but we're here to hear you most of all. All right, what are your impressions on this? Because not only was it not a Jake Paul knockout, he got beat. He did. Uh, as I said, when we started off talking about the, what we were going to talk about on the show, uh, if you bought the pay-per-view, you got about as much out of that fight as I think you could expect if you were being realistic, which was two guys that were sort of evenly matched, it felt like, it felt like you know, um, that put on a pretty good show. I could have done without a lot of that. There was a lot of holding, especially in the first half of the fight. I could have done with a little less of the grappling. But... uh Look, they came in shape. They they tried. They put on a pretty good show. Uh, I was satisfied with the fight. Uh, I really, I can't really knock Tommy Fury. He did what he what he needed to do. He got the win. Good for him. He deserved it. I thought it was um, a competitive fight. Uh, you know, I get roasted on Twitter because I said it was a close fight. You know, which it was, um, in my opinion. One of the judges actually had it uh, in favor of Jake Paul. Um, I kind of thought he might get the benefit of the doubt, being you know the the bigger name, if you will, even though Tommy is the the half-brother of uh, Tyson Fury, who was ringside, the heavyweight champ. Um, but it, it was what it was. I mean, if you bought it, you were entertained, I believe. Uh, Jake Paul has a rematch clause. He indicated in his post-fight interview on the broadcast that he would exercise that. One thing I'll give both guys credit for, and I'll tip the hat, which you can't see, but I am wearing. Uh, the fans who are, who are, you know, the, the listeners can can't see it. I can verify. He you did can tip see it. it. Uh, <laughs> Listen, they both showed humility. They both gave it up to each other. I felt I felt like uh, you you learn a lot about fighters, how they deal with their loss, yes. more so when they deal with their win. And the, and I'm going to date myself a little bit. I'm going to go back about 20 years ago. Uh, the most braggadocious, loudmouth guy that everybody, you know, who bought his events or bought tickets, you know, half of them wanted to see him win. The other half wanted to see him get his ass knocked out. That was the prince, Prince Nassim Hamed. Mm-hmm. I covered the fight when he lost to Marco Antonio Barrera. And was pleasantly shocked, frankly, when I went to the post-fight news conference. And that's why I mentioned this, because I'll never forget it. The guy with the biggest mouth in boxing, who would never shut the heck up and would just brag and boast and beat his chest, you know, make Floyd Mayweather look humble the way he did that. And 
You know what? The prince came to that post-fight press conference after he got his rear end, you know, clearly beat by Marco Antonio Barrera in pretty much every facet of the of the fight. And he gave it up to him. He says, listen, my man did a great job. I can't, I, what am I going to say? He beat me. End of story. And I uh, didn't make a lot of excuses. Didn't, you know, just was humble. And so when I heard, when I heard Jake talking about mm-hmm. the fight in the post-fight, he did mention about some injuries and feeling sick, but he says, but I, you know, all credit to him. He beat me. Good, good fight. No problem. I didn't take that as like excuse making. I just took that as like, you know, reality. And I, I was very pleased that when, when Jake took that loss, that he said all the right things. I was glad that Tommy didn't act like, uh, you know, a jerk in that. And he accepted that and he was cool. They would, they hugged it out. It's all good. Uh, he gave him credit for fighting a good fight. And uh, I like that after the fight's over with, when the fight's over with the fight's over with. All right, so two or three things. The first thing is it is easier, you know this, when they hype this and they're getting paid the money they got paid for not having uh, a lot of accomplishment in the ring, either one of them. So it's a lot easier to accept it, uh, et cetera, and plus there's a rematch coming. So we know they're going to get paid a second time uh, off of this. The next thing is I'm going to be critical of Jake Paul. Whatever, I mean, he did make an excuse about being ill or about being injured. To what extent, we don't know. Fighters don't ever talk about that before uh, a fight. They always talk about it. It seems like losers talk about it after the fight. I was injured. I had whatever well, problem. I got to okay. call time out. I'm I just talking about in general. Out. They don't. No, no. But what I was going to say, though, was in the pre-fight on the broadcast, uh, when one of the commentators interviewed both fighters in the dressing room, the two fighters were asked very specifically about, are you are you feeling good? Are you Were there any injuries? Were which is a valid question because mm-hmm. you want them on the record. I've done that myself and build up to certain fights. And both guys are like, perfect camp. I feel perfect. I feel perfect. Everything is great. I mean, you know, not that I expect them to like, right. you know, but they... show you their 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 medical report or anything. But I just find that funny that, you know, 45 minutes later, it's like my arm hurt. I was yeah, sick. exactly. I was sick. You know? and, but camp. I will give, I'll, Jake, I know you want to finish what you're saying, but I'm going to give credit to um, Jake Paul. He did get the clean knockdown. Uh, he did. And we'll get to know, that. And once, we'll get to that because that's all yeah. the way at the end of the fight. For the first seven rounds, though, you saw inexperience, I thought. What what do I know? You're you're more I'm I'm a fight fan for 40 plus years. You saw inexperience of not being in yeah. there with a real fighter. Couldn't put punches together, tentative, all the different for whatever reasons, all the different criticisms that have been out there, they were kind of manifested really for a lot of that fight. And yeah, he got a flash knockdown at the beginning of the eighth. But then again, for the next two plus minutes, he couldn't put anything together uh, after that. And I, I think this is where those that are hardcore fight fans that looked at this and said, Jake Paul's a circus when he gets in there with real fighters, he didn't get knocked out, but he got exposed in some ways of you haven't been in there with real competition. And now when you were in there with at least somebody who's legitimately trained, who's been working through his adult life as a boxer, you couldn't put combinations together, couldn't put the pressure on him, couldn't do what you need to do in an eight-round fight. Uh, so I, I think there's valid criticism on this. Again, they've done a phenomenal job, he and his people, of hyping him. There but, but is no this... doubt, tip of the hat, tip of the hat, they have made some bank off of hyping him. But for those that were critical all along that this is a you know, this is a circus, it's a sideshow when he gets in there with real fighters. Okay, so I there's I what I, I said. Go ahead. You know, and that's I understand where you're coming from, and I, I'm not going to argue strenuously, strenuously mm-hmm. against that, but I, I don't think that's totally fair because I don't think he was quote unquote exposed because for a guy, Tommy Fury is 23 years old, mm-hmm. has been boxing in in, the, in a boxing life for his whole life basically, and even though he's only got eight professional fights, he was brought up in a fighting family. That's what they do if you're a Fury. 
And Jake Paul has, prior to the fight with Fury, had six fights as a professional, one fight as an amateur, and didn't start even as in terms of the amateur fight. I think it's been maybe like four years. So to come from where he was on day one of picking up gloves, when Tommy Fury had probably like a 12 or 15 year jump start, at least in terms of being acclimated to training and sparring or hitting mitts or whatever, he's advanced quickly. And even though he didn't win the fight, it wasn't like he was so outclassed or anything like that. He competed in a competitive manner. Even if you thought that Fury was winning most of the rounds, he w- it was the, the three-minute segments were competitive each time. And so I felt like Jake Paul uh, fighting a quote-unquote real boxer, which everybody wanted to see him do, he did it. Uh, and he may not have won the fight and come up short, fair enough, uh, but he competed in every round. He did get the knockdown, and he's got nothing to be ashamed of. But, you know, I also understand there will be critics who will say Tommy Fury's not that much of a proven commodity either. And Agreed. if either one of them are in there with a contending fighter, not even a championship fighter, that both of them would get beaten up in the, in the current situation. And what I mean again, because I'm going to come back to the word with exposed, the inexperience uh, and the inability to put things together, that's part of the sport. That's part of the development in the sport. And when you didn't see combinations, when you didn't see third round becomes fourth round becomes fifth round, can he put something together against a guy who understands how to be elusive, how to give you angles, how to move, which Fury did, that uh, that to me says he's got work to do. Jake Paul has got work to do. Because if, he's, if he's ever, one more, if he's ever going to take Jake Paul another step, into contending or championship level, and maybe that's as far-fetched as the moon. Maybe that's never going to happen. But if he's ever going to make those steps, he's got to be a lot better in those areas, or he has no hope when he moves up. All right, go ahead. This is the harsh reality. And you know from us having spoken about Jake Paul on a variety of occasions on the show that I am in no way a hater of Jake Paul, or Mm -hmm. of Tommy Fury for that matter. Here's what I learned about the fight tonight uh, that we saw on Sunday. They were evenly matched, relatively speaking, and I don't view either one of them as a serious prospect. That's the point. Yes. I don't think Tommy Fury is going to the promised land of becoming a world champion like his brother. Let him prove me wrong. And I would say the same about Jake Paul, and I don't say that with malice or or dislike or hatred or anything. I'm just saying what I saw is two guys who are limited in their abilities, and I think and that's they can fair. train for the next 10 years, and they are what they are. Now, that's not to say that they can't both incrementally improve. The amount of improvement that would be necessary from both of them would have to be dramatic for them to reach the level of even beating a top contender. Now, Tommy Fury is 23 years old. He's a young guy, but it's not like he's that young. I mean, you'd see a lot of guys who are already champions at that age or close to it. Um, they So and I'm not going to insult them by saying they're sideshows. And I dare say that when Jake Paul fights again, that it's not like suddenly nobody's going to want to buy his fights. He still has... Um, a lot of fans out there that are going to be interested to see the event, whether he's fighting a rematch with Tommy or he goes in some other direction. But, uh, you know, it, it was what it was. It was a pretty good fight between two limited guys who have a certain ceiling that probably is somewhere below being a top contender slash world champion. Uh, they made a lot of money. I give anybody that can make millions of dollars from, yes. you know, God bless them. Uh, I don't ever begrudge that. And uh, I'll tell you, here's the thing. When I turned off the TV after watching the pay-per-view, 
I didn't feel like I was ripped off. No, I got my, I got my money's worth. I felt like I was entertained. It was a good diversion. There was no other sports going on today. My son, who knows Jake Paul from his, as we've talked about from his days on Bizarre Vark on the Disney Channel, was even interested. He's never really shown that much interest in boxing. A little bit here and there, but he sat and watched uh, that fight with me. Um, I thought the undercard fights, which we'll talk about in a minute, with uh, the cruiserweight championship fight with Makabu and Badu Jack, was a hell of a fight. And uh, you know, I had a good Sunday afternoon, is all I can say. Well, and and just one more. Jake Paul, I thought, had some refreshing honesty, and this is good stuff, where he said, I've made it farther than even I ever thought that I would. In other words, in terms of success, he has been a Hollywood actor at the Disney Channel on, on shows. Let's be honest here. While while fight most fight fans maybe don't realize this, there are millions and millions of kids that watch stuff on the Disney Channel and families watch with them. And he was on a show there being watched by millions of people over the course of a TV season and being paid to do it in Hollywood. Now he's making millions of dollars and the guy doesn't even have 10 professional fights. And let's let's uh, let's break news to those that haven't figured it out. These two are going to fight again probably late summer and they're going to make seven figures again. So the joke's on you if you don't think they're cashing in financially. They will. I mean, if hypothetically... I think good for them though, right? Good for yes. them. I'm not begrudging them. I'm saying hypothetically, if they fight in the UK, Jake Paul can easily ask for three or four million dollars again to go fight Tommy Fury in the in the UK and probably get it. And if probably I could get fight it. millions, I'd fight you twice. Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, but in any <laughs> event, uh, okay. So there's the final postscript. Even he was saying after this fight, I've made it farther figuratively than I ever thought I would make it in life. He is he is tremendously prominent and popular on social media, and it's lucrative. He's now been in the boxing ring making millions of dollars. Confirmed. Hasn't even had 10 fights. So there you go. And maybe this is as far as he goes because maybe he fights Tommy Fury again and Tommy Fury knocks him out. I don't know. By the way, here's another thing. He didn't have to sell out to another promoter to do this event. His company controlled the event. They made a deal with the folks in Saudi, the Skills Challenge people. Mm -hmm. Skill Challenge, I believe, is what they're named. And uh, they were able to you know, not have to really share what was the revenue from all around the world. They were their own promoter, essentially. Uh, you know, with the local folks in Saudi, obviously doing uh, their part of the deal, but they didn't have to go with Frank Lauren, Tommy Fury's promoter for this fight. They didn't have, to, they did a deal with top rank, but only to the extent that they uh, brokered the, uh, the pay-per-view for North America and, and uh, you know, and, and was assisted in some of that stuff uh, and helping market it with ESPN, et cetera. But, you know, they, they did what, what you want if you're in that position, which is you control your own event. You are the boss. You you get a, you know money off of every single possible revenue stream as opposed to taking a guarantee from a promoter and maybe working for some of the upside. No, they get everything. They pay Tommy a fee. He'll make money on the upside if it hits. But by and large, the revenue, once the expenses are paid, is going to Jake and his, his, his company. And one more. He also said something that's very true in all of sports, including boxing. You learn more out of losses here. And we can go all through the history of boxing. Go back to Ali. After losing to Joe Frazier, what happened? He continued to have a Hall of Fame career and beat other Hall of Fame caliber fighters. What about Ray Leonard when he lost to Duran? What did we learn about him? Went on to beat Hall of Fame fighters. And on, on. Okay, can we what just not? Can we? Can we not put Jake Paul in the center? No, no, no. Hold on. I'm just making the metaphor. I know what you're saying, but what did it's we making learn? me a little queasy. Okay, but hold on. What did we learn? We're going to talk about Mike Tyson a little bit in the nostalgia. What did we learn after Mike Tyson's loss? And yes, he won some title fights after coming out of prison after that. But he was never the same, Mike Tyson. You do learn more out of losing about what is somebody about. What are they truly about? 
And again, one more time, we may learn that Jake Paul has gone as far as he can go. That's what we may be about to find out. The rest of 2023, 2024, that's kind of the intrigue in the short term. That's what we may be about to find out. I, I do I, suspect- I'm not bringing him up as a Hall of Fame fighter. I'm just, Rayfield, I'm just using the metaphor about losing. What I was going to say, though, is whatever becomes of his career inside the boxing ring, uh, whether he goes on and defeats Tommy in a rematch or he goes some other direction or he loses and decides to hang up the gloves, whatever the case may be, I do suspect that in some form or fashion he's going to be around the business for a while because they do mm-hmm. have a promotion company. They've signed a handful of fighters. He is the promoter of uh, of uh, Amanda Serrano, the undisputed women's featherweight uh, world champion. Mm-hmm. And, you and know, we should he, mention this professional fighters league that he is now part owner of. He announced that and he's involved with that. Uh, I mean, on that's on the MMA side. Of, you know, that's on, on MMA. Correct. That, but that's a his, business his partici- thing. Business yeah, but his, thing, part, yeah. his participation in the cage is still a couple of years away if, there, if it ever even happens. Correct. But he's now got business interest with that, too. All of this being leveraged around everything he did. Okay, so now let's get to the real McCoy, which was the WBC Cruiserweight Championship fight won by Badu Jack, 39 years of age. Is it confirmed? As we talk on Sunday night, I don't know that this is the case, but Rayfield would know. Badu Jack said in the ring, I believe I'm the oldest fighter to ever win a Cruiserweight world title at 39 years of age. And he took it to uh, Ilunga Jr. Macabo uh, and put it on him. Uh, throughout this fight is is that correct i believe that's correct i mean i'm not gonna argue with badu jack he said it i mean i haven't well first of all just because a fighter says something (laughs) doesn't mean anything to me because they're (laughs) half the time they're wrong in the case of in the case of badu jack who by the way is a really good dude i've known him for many years covered a lot of his fights always Mm -hmm. been a a real like real real a real guy like a chill guy if you ask him a question in an interview we'll give you what i believe is a an honest answer and a look you in the eye and he's a, a real straight shooter in my estimation in any event I do think he is probably the oldest cruiserweight champion that there's been. I have to go look. I didn't like go and uh, check through the years, but uh, maybe there's somebody older. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but even if he's not, it's still a pretty big accomplishment to be uh, not only at that age to win that title, but it, it makes Bad Dude Jack a three division title holder. He won title at uh, super middleweight. He was a champion in the, in the light heavyweight division. Now he's won the WBC belt in the cruiserweight division. And that's uh that's a pretty good accomplishment. You can't really argue with that. Now, uh, somebody was asking me, is he, uh, I was getting a few questions on Twitter and I had a, a back and forth a little bit with my good pal, Ishe Smith, the former junior middleweight champion. And uh, my opinion is, though, he's probably not a Hall of Famer. You know, people want to make such quick snap judgments on that. It's not about one fight. Now, one fight can certainly make or break a legacy, but usually there's got to be something more to it. And again, I'm not knocking what he has accomplished. Jake, uh, Bad Dude Jack has been a tremendous fighter for many many years he was an olympian and he's been in some excellent fights but i'm sorry uh, hall of fame is a whole different level uh in my mind and there's the, the three title thing is cool but we do live in an era where there's a lot of belts uh you know i use the extreme example of adrian broner having won titles in four-way mm-hmm. classes and adrian broner's uh, uh hall of fame visit will be uh only if he buys a ticket or uh our good friends that run the place give him a free pass um <laughs> All right, so but back, but I don't back view him to as Jack in this fight. I got you. Back to Jack in this fight. Why did he have so much success against Makabu? I thought it was interesting. Uh, Sean Porter on the commentary was saying right away that two things. Makabu looks slow. Is it ring rust from being out of the ring for a year? Or, or maybe has he gotten old here as much as Jack is 39? Makabu's what, 35? Yeah. Sean Porter was pointing out like in the second round about how slow Macabu looks. He, so what is your slow. thought? I mean, 
No, my, my point, a couple points. Number one, he is slow. He's always been slow. He was slow early in his career. He's slow later in his career. He's slow tonight. He's going to be slow next year. He's just a slow fighter, period. The other thing is, uh, and again, it's not necessarily indicative of what's the future told, but if you go back and look at the last fight, which was about 13 months ago, when he fought uh, Tabiso Machunu in a title defense that was on one of the Don King cards, uh, he looked terrible in that fight. He got a split decision. I thought he won, and it was, you know, it's not like he got a gift, but it was not a good performance at all. He'd probably be the first to admit that. And the inactivity does take a toll. He hasn't been the most active guy. He did fight two times in uh, 2020, but he didn't fight at all in 2021. He didn't fight at all in uh, in 2000. Uh, and, uh, uh, and he had fought a couple times before that, but had long, like almost a year between fights in the previous year. So he hasn't been the most active fighter. Uh, and at 35 and being slow. And also, even though he was the guy that's been a cruiserweight for as long as he's been a cruiserweight, uh the size difference between Bedu Jack and, and Macaboo was very obvious. Bedu Jack had, you know, several inches on him in height, certainly had a longer reach. Now, it's not about the size necessarily, but it doesn't hurt, particularly when you're a fighter like Bedu Jack that knows how to exploit that. Some guys you see are really tall, but they fight short. Jack was able to use that to his advantage, the way he boxed, the way he used his reach to his advantage. And he he's a very smart, capable, technical boxer when he wants to be, but he also can mix it up. And I just thought he had a good game plan. He's, you know, he's a, he's a true veteran pro. He was in good shape. He was poised. He was calm. You know, he knew what he had in front of him. He had a guy that basically is, is one weapon is maybe a good, you know, straight left hand. Uh, and he was able to pretty much avoid that to, to any major detriment to him. And uh, he kept his hands moving. Like I said, at 39 to be in the kind of condition that he was in to have a good output of punches regularly. He didn't have you know, sometimes you get to that age, you can bullshit your way through a fight because you can hold, fight for 20 seconds here, maybe lean on the ropes, right. maybe run a little bit, kill the clock, and then have another spurt. But he, I think uh, the way I looked at that fight is he had regular activity throughout each round. I mean, he fought not at a crazy hard pace for three minutes every round, but there weren't a lot of dead spots in what he was doing. So, you know, he came in, in the proper condition where he could go. And he was the better fighter. 10th is yeah, what you're saying. 10th round, 11th round, because they were, again, even saying on the broadcast, look at the punch output, and he got a knockdown in the 11th round, and he was not taking any chances on, I'm not going to have no. this go to the cards and get a draw or get robbed on a split decision. I'm going to win the 11th round. I'm going to win the 12th round. And he's ended up stopping uh, Makabu in the 12th yeah. round. So great performance, obviously. He also, he also dropped him in the fourth round. And, and, uh, Look, I got ridiculed by some people on social media because on the BetUS show, I picked them outright to win the fight. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, uh, it was, you know, I don't remember the exact odds of what he was, but he was clearly the underdog. Now, I picked him by a decision, and he ended up stopping him, uh, you know, with about two minutes left in the fight. So I was sort of close to that one. But but the point was, I knew that I felt in my bones this is going to be a long fight. I would like to see... Uh, uh, Makabu last another two minutes just for the sake of the bet us but whatever <laughs> uh, but i didn't really ever doubt in my mind like sometimes we make the picks on the show and sometimes you're super confident in your pick right another time pick because you know we have to make a pick in this particular case i was very very convinced that that for a lot of reasons that badu jack was winning this fight and uh you jack know, was a two to one underdog about a 50 50 fight Makabu was a two to one favorite on the money line i took Makabu on the money line once again ray feels right Ray's yeah, is wrong happens. Uh, but, but, you know, by the same token, I mean, Makabu by about the seventh or eighth round looked tired with the mouth open. I mean, it's probably the end of the line for him. You would think 
How how much longer? Just one more, and we'll wrap it up. How much longer do you think uh, Badu Jack can fight? Can he fight into into year you know forty yeah. into twenty twenty four, or is he maybe only got one or two fights left? What's your take? I mean, at, at that age, you never know if it's one or two fights. I mean, it's really how he feels. It's at this stage of your career, it's really a fight by fight basis. But based on his disposition, his comments after the fight, his general way he's carried himself through his career. I don't, he's not looking to retire. Some guys they're like, maybe I want one more, two more this or that. Uh, he'll ride this title as long as he can. I'm sure. Um, you know, I'm sure he's going to try to make it, you know, defend the title before the end of the year. Um, you know, he has associations with the folks in Saudi Arabia. Yep. Uh, you know, he lives in Vegas for many, many years, but he's been basing himself more recently or, or training there anyway in Dubai. So he's got a lot of connections in the middle East. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, uh, in his first defense, maybe he headlines a show in Saudi Arabia or in Dubai or wherever. Um, listen, I wish him good luck. He's like I said, he's a good guy. And, uh, you know, he's, he's the old epitome of the grizzled war horse who was not totally And look, a lot of people were saying when he fought Richard Rivera back in August, which was the fight, uh, August of last year, which was also in Saudi Arabia and Jeddah, you know, he didn't look very good in that fight. And he would be the first to admit that I am sure he, he, he looked real off against, uh, uh, an undefeated guy, but not a guy that had fought even remotely the kind of competition that Badu Jack has faced over his career. And um, I think that was another reason why, uh, you know, he was considered the underdog in this fight. But I think, you know, he'll, he'll, like I said, he'll ride this as long as he can. If it means one defense, two defense, three defense. And at some point, you know, when you get into your early 40s, you have to consider what you're going to do. But I, I think Jack is one of these kind of guys that's going to, as long as he's up to it and he's in physical, uh, you know, is able to do it physically, you know, he's going to fight for a while. Good enough. All right, some fight news, some nostalgia, and then we're done. Uh, Keyshawn Davis, tell me more because it looks like uh, he is going to be part of the Shakur Stevenson April 8th card coming from top rank in ESPN, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that that's something that they'd already announced. That was obvious. Uh, that was already something they had planned. That's the card on April 8th in Newark, New Jersey, where you have uh, Shakur Stevenson, the hometown fighter, is in uh, the... the um, the WBC lightweight title eliminator against uh, Yoshino in the main event and top rank added their two best prospects to that card without naming opponents. One was Jared Anderson, the heavyweight who I picked as the prospect of the year for 2021. The other one was Keyshawn Davis, the lightweight who was a silver medal winner uh, in the Olympic games in 2020, who I picked as the 2022 prospect of the year. And so now they're going to be on the card, but now they got his opponent. He's fighting a guy named Anthony, who if you followed the world boxing super series, uh, you would know that he was one of the the com competitors in their 140-pound tournament. He has since moved down to the lightweight division where uh, after suffering a couple of fights, a couple of losses rather, but now he's fighting in, in the lightweight division. And, you know, he's he's. I think he's actually a step up for Keyshawn Davis. I think that Keyshawn's probably going to win fairly handily. Uh, but his last opponent was against Juan Carlos Burgos, who was an old-time veteran who had been, fought for a world title previously but was, you know, well past his prime in my estimation. Yigit is still more more on the – I'm not saying he's a young, up-and-coming fighter, but he's certainly fresher than Burgos was. He has fought for a world title. Uh, he is the former European champion in junior welterweight division. And, uh, you know, it should be an okay test for him. I mean, it's going to be hard for top rank to get opponents for Keyshawn Davis to fight that are at any kind of level because they're wanting to get paid against a guy who's still a prospect, not making big money. The one interesting thing to me anyway, for Davis's point of view, is this – uh, he is now stepping up in this fight. This will be uh, his first scheduled 10 rounder. So that's sort of a milestone for any young fighter, uh, which I find to be interesting. And so, 
we'll see what he can do. I suspect it'll be a, a, a somewhat, I won't say easy, but it's going to be, he'll win the fight, but it's about getting him experience, getting him in the rounds, seeing what he can do against an ever increasing level of opposition uh, against a guy that's got a lot of experience. Remember the two losses that you get suffered uh, were in the world boxing super series where he challenged for a title uh, that was vacant. The same IBF junior welterweight title, by the way, that Sabrina Matias won on the Showtime card. But when it was vacant, he fought Ivan Baranchek in the tournament. He lost by a knockout in that fight. And then his only other one was he challenged when Roly Romero was the WBA's interim title holder in 2021. And he got stopped by Roly Romero in that fight too. But again, he's moving down and he's moved down in weight since then. Uh, theoretically, he should be stronger, bigger, whatever. Uh, we'll see what uh, what, what uh, Keyshawn Davis can do. But Keyshawn Davis is, is a, as blue chip as it gets in this sport. And uh, it's going to be fun watching him make the move uh, as he rises up the ladder. He is definitely targeted for stardom, it looks like. Uh, okay, uh, longtime Japanese star and former world champion in the middleweight division, Ryota Murata has announced that's it. We last saw him against Gennady Golovkin last year. Your thoughts on Murata and the finish to his career? Murata, I think, you know, he did win the WBA belt. Uh, he was a secondary title holder. I think he might have had their full title at one point. I kind of view him a little bit of a disappointment with the amount of hype that he had coming into the pros. He had won the gold medal uh, in the in the Olympic Games, which is what made him basically an overnight superstar in Japan. He really was the face of Japanese boxing pretty much for the last decade because uh, he had won the gold medal in 2012. Uh, kind of over the last few years as his schedule became more and more inactive and with the continual ascension of Noyoya Inoue, who basically replaced him as that uh, household name, if you will, that mainstream boxing star in Japan, which, you know, has a tremendous boxing history and all that. Um, but with Murata having been somewhat inactive over the last few years, basically waiting to get the big payday against Triple G and to unify the titles, which that's what happened in their last fight, as you mentioned, and he got knocked out in that fight. It doesn't come as a huge surprise. Um, you know, Murata was one of those guys that just, I saw him fight in the United States when he came over early in his career, it might even been his professional debut, if I remember. I don't remember if it was the first fight, the second fight. I just remember being like dramatically underwhelmed by his his what I saw, and I, I just never was really really overly impressed by him. Nice guy, and you know, I'm not saying he didn't work hard and all that, but he just kind of always left me like wanting more. And uh, to me, it's going to be a story of like great amateur win in the Olympic Games. He beat Esquiva Falcao, who's now an undefeated uh, contender for the one of the middleweight belts that launched him. He turned pro with a ton of hype. I remember, by the way, when he fought in the United States, there was like 20 Japanese media that made the trip. And this is what was crazy. I mean, I was working at ESPN at the time, and I don't remember. I want to say it was like on a Tim Bradley undercard. You'd have to look that up. Maybe when he fought uh, Brandon Rios or something like that. All right. But the, the host hotel was the win. And they had the press room. It was really like in a, in a wasn't really a, a press room. It was sort of like in a an empty restaurant or something like that. But the bottom line was they had all the Japanese press were there and they were looking for anybody to talk to because they had stories and videos to file. And so one of the top ranked PR people came over to me and said, Hey, you know, they like to talk to you about your thoughts about Murata. Cause you know, I was obviously a well-known boxing reporter, uh, an American and they You're were interested you. in You're or whatever. You. I've always so, said that about you. So, so it was just kind of bizarre because usually I'm the one asking the questions, you know, you might do a, I've done like a YouTube interview or, you know, you make a comment about this or that, but they want, I almost had like my own press conference, like in the corner of this area. With the Japanese like, media. <laughs> it was, yeah. And they had a translator. It was me and like, you know, probably 15 Japanese reporters and cameras, you know, talking about the middleweight division and 
what I you know thought of Murata. Did I see him in the Olympics? It, it was the that's what I'm trying to make the point, not because of uh, anything. All right, so me. I think I found you. I think I got you. This would but, have been probably on, November the, 2015. Gunner Jackson. Does that sound yes. right? Thomas and Mac Center. Does that sound right? Yes, that was Thomas and Mac. What fight card was that? I don't know but, who was the main event, but it was November 2015 that you're talking about. But Gunner the, Jackson's the, thing, the opponent. Yeah. The thing I'm saying though is the fact that that I would have that kind of like that they would ask me for that show, and that all those folks would come over from Japan to cover a guy in like his early going of his professional career, uh, you know, that was, shows you the, the magnitude of, of what they thought of him. And so you're right. I look it up his record as we're talking. It wasn't his pro debut. It was like his what seventh or eighth fight. Mm -hmm. And uh, the main event, uh, by the way, here's how sick I am. It was in fact, the Timothy Bradley, Brandon Rios undercard <laughs> that I, I should, I, I need to like, I need to, to unplug for a couple of days. I know, the fact but score yourself that, 10 bonus points. You know these that, things. But anyway, ridiculous. your point is the Japanese media is talking to you at the Bradley main event card about a guy that's only had eight pro fights. It just gives you an idea of what they thought of him. And now he's That's how famous up. he was yeah. in Japan. Yeah. That they would travel a large contingent of press thousands of miles on an expensive trip to cover a guy in an eight round, a 10 round fight, but not even part of the broadcast on television, uh, you know, not part of the uh, Japanese broadcast and not a fee. It was on the pay-per-view probably, but not a featured main fight. Like, you know, Lomachenko was on but the card. I mean, the Japanese it was media, crazy. the Japanese media is something else. I mean, I'll cross over sports. Like when Ichiro came over here, the great player for the Seattle Mariners, and they regularly had 30 different members of the media his first yes. season traveling everywhere with the Mariners because he was that big of a deal and baseball is that big of a deal so it uh, in, in Japan. And I'll give you one more, even in golf, all right? Uh, they, they, there was a Japanese golfer that he's not a household name. It won't matter now, but I can tell you that he was ticketed for stardom. We were talking about that with Keyshawn Davis. His name was Ryo Ishikawa is his name. Ishikawa won a Japanese tour event as a 17-year-old. He was being billed as the Japanese Tiger Woods. Look out. So Ishikawa came to play golf in the United States and came to play in Florida about this time, about the time you're talking about with Murata. This would have been probably about 2010, 2009, 2010. And I kid you not, he came to play a PGA Tour event in my market in Tampa Bay, which is an ordinary PGA Tour stop, not a major. There were 30-plus Japanese members of the media, written, cameras, uh, broadcast, whatever, that were following this guy. They are passionate. They are passionate about their sports figures, and so that's just interesting that you took part of that with Murata. We tie it all Well, in. I'll say one other thing. When you mentioned that about the traveling Japanese press mm -hmm. corps, how, how much they get behind uh, their athletes that come overseas. In my pre-boxing life, when I used to cover minor league baseball, Mm -hmm. In my past newspaper stops, I was the I was the beat reporter for the Binghamton Mets of the Double A Eastern League. They were the mm -hmm. you know the Double A franchise of the New York Mets, and when they were playing against what was then the Yankees uh, uh, organization, but playing at home in Binghamton, when the Yankees signed the pitcher Hideki Irabu, uh huh, he made I believe it was his first start in Double A, may have even been his first start of his American baseball career. It so happened that he took his turn in the rotation in Binghamton. So, and, and Binghamton being, of course, a it was our home team was the Binghamton Nets, but the area was all Yankee and Mets fans being in that area of New York, obviously. The amount of Japanese media that came to a little double-A ballpark in upstate New York, uh, you know, three, four hours, three and a half, four hours from New York City, 
was mind boggling. And I was like a young reporter. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And it was nuts. And, you know, that's the magnitude. And the thing about it with as it relates to Murata, yes, he won a, a couple of world titles, never like the big world title, let's say. He finished his career like 16 and three. So it wasn't even like he was around for a long time. Uh, but he is maybe will go down as a footnote in, in our thought process of boxing. But in Japan, over the last 20, 25 years, he's about as big as it gets. There you go. Uh, and, of course, Rayfield's in the middle of it. We wouldn't expect anything less. And that's one of those things where the double-A baseball team might have five members of the media in the press box. And Not suddenly even. you got 30. And suddenly you got 35 because the Japanese guys are there so, uh, trying to cover everything. and trying. When, to, I, used to, when I covered the Binghamton Mets mm -hmm. on a normal night at the ballpark, the media contingent was Rayfield and, like, two radio guys. <laughs> Maybe, maybe there'd be like from the and weekly, then week, uh, suddenly Hideki Arabu shows up and we're serving sushi and we've got uh, standing room only in the press box. So I and let I, me tell I, you, I, when you're when you're the only beat writer in town and you have to go into that clubhouse when the Binghamton Mets, one of the years I covered them was on about a 14 game losing streak. <laughs> there's no place in the world you'd rather be less than that clubhouse after that loss. Stick me in the eye with a lead pencil. Please. I'm doing this again. All right. Uh, one more note. Jack Catterall, something else on him, was supposed to get the fight with Josh Taylor. That's not happening. Now is there more bad news that Catterall was supposed to fight in March? Well, I don't know and, if it's bad news. And apparently he, that's not happening. What's going on? Enlighten me. Well, we, we already discussed the fact that he's not getting the Taylor rematch at this point mm -hmm. for, for, for different reasons. Uh, there was a Taylor injury. Then once that rematch, which was supposed to be early March, was delayed, and then the WBO instead decided to order his mandatory challenge against or mandatory defense rather against Tifima Lopez, which is now uh, going to probably be on the books for mid June. Uh, Catterall's already been out of the ring since last February when he had the very controversial loss against Josh Taylor. So boxer, which is his promoter. Now you got to get the guy back in the ring. So they had scheduled him to fight March 25th in Manchester, England supposed to be on one of the undercard fights when uh, Lawrence Acoli uh, makes his mandatory against David light. Uh, it was announced that he was going to be on the card. Didn't have an opponent. And then suddenly he's now off the show. I inquired with the boxer folks about what happened. Because uh, then the reason I knew he was off the show is not they didn't announce he's off the show. What they did was they send out another announcement outlining the full card because they had added a bunch of other undercard fights. And when Jack Catterall was not on the show, uh, I inquired with their media folks and it was like, hey, just was curious what's up. What happened? You guys announced that Catterall's on and now he's off. I didn't know if he was injured or something had happened or whatever. And they basically were like, no, look, uh, we're working on opportunities for Jack and hope to have some news, you know, in due course, as they say. And what that tells me is like, why take a risk in a, a just a regular sort of tune up type fight, even if it has been uh, made to get you into the ring after a long layoff? It tells me they're working on something that's more than just an undercard fight uh, against uh, nobody in particular. And that hopefully they'll have him back, you know, maybe out in one of their shows in April or May uh, against a, a higher level of opponent. Obviously, it's not going to be the rematch against Josh Taylor. But hopefully they can make a good fight. Maybe they'll get him a fight with Regis Progray or something like that and bring Regis over. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that's the fight. I'm just saying that's the type of – I would hope that they're able to land Catterall that type of fight that's – if they're going to pull him off the March show uh, to do so because they've got something bigger and better for him. So that was all that. Let's hope so. little nostalgia now as we wrap it up on the podcast. Uh, Mike Tyson, Frank Bruno – uh, 34 years ago this past Friday, uh, Tyson dispatched Frank Bruno for the first time because he beat him again later post-prison. 
but dispatched him in five rounds. And that the significance also is that was Tyson's last win as the unbeaten, undisputed heavyweight title before Buster Douglas beat him in his next fight. So how about that? That sure. uh, Tyson, Tyson Bruno, 34 years ago. I still remember um, all the hype around Frank Bruno, and rightfully so, as the British champion and the British fans. And, like, for example, even in Saudi Arabia, to bring it back to Paul and Fury just for one quick sec, whenever Tommy Fury was doing anything in that fight, on Sunday night, the British fans that were in attendance in Saudi Arabia were going crazy. It was par- it was far more partisan for Fury when he did anything as opposed to Jake Fa- Paul. Those fight fans were rabid. And I still remember when he fought Tyson the first time, like every English sporting fan really believed he had a legitimate chance maybe to beat the seemingly indestructible Mike Tyson. The British fans believe this. We we in this country went, what are you talking about? Yeah. And Mike Tyson took care of him. That's just my point. But any- anyway, 34 years ago my friend i mean that. that was that was the the apex of tyson's career the absolute peak where and i've said this i'm not the only one that i'm not saying that tyson is the all-time great heavyweight but on the night that he knocked out michael spinks in 91 seconds in atlantic city he might have knocked out any heavyweight who ever lived now he didn't have the longevity he didn't have uh you know the magnitude of victories but that animal on that night would have been a devastating force against anybody. And I don't care who you're talking about. Talk about Ali, talk about George, George, you know, Foreman in his best or Tyson Fury or Joe Frazier or pick, pick Joe Lewis. Cause he was so devastating at that moment. That was the apex for Tyson, but his next fight after Spinks eight months later was the Bruno fight. And that was the last of the undefeated run. And he looked incredible knocking out Frank Bruno, uh, who was, petrified going into the ring like most of Tyson's opponents were <laughs> and Tyson just I was just going to say so since you brought up that word isn't part of the argument that we can't accurately judge Tyson on a lot of what he did because so many of the guys were intimidated and that once we saw someone with size and skill stand up to him it was totally different after that and so you could make the argument that in a foreman's case because of the size and that what he, that he would have stood up to him that maybe that's a great hypothetical argument on what might have happened there's right. a, there's a thousand hypotheticals that you can discuss with tyson mm-hmm. i know that there was a lot of conversation there was a movement uh, between don king and bob arum uh, to make foreman versus tyson when they co-headlined an hbo fight in the late 80s it never ended up happening this is after this is actually post uh, buster douglas it you know this was on the night mm-hmm. that tyson ended up uh, coming back actually, and um, uh, I believe it was when he fought uh, Henry Tillman, which was his first fight back after the loss against Buster Douglas. George Foreman fought on that same card on the undercard, and there was a lot of conversation that they were going to make this fight because George was promoted by Aram, and King still had Mike, and uh, they were both fighting on HBO still. And there was a that, that was the doubleheader. Tyson fought in the main event, and George was in the co-feature. They were supposed to fight each other. That would have been obviously a massive pay-per-view. It never happened. Uh, so we never know about what the intimidation factor was. I suspect George is not going to be intimidated by anybody knowing George Foreman. But the fact that he intimidated guys, that was that that's part of that as effective as your jab might be or your hook or your uppercut, if you can intimidate a guy, you'd get bonus points because that's part of the deal. So Frank Bruno was petrified, but it was a it was another awesome wrecking ball moment for Mike mm-hmm. Tyson to go in against his big Frank Bruno was a big, tall, strong, physically chiseled guy, uh, not blessed with the greatest chin in the world. You know, the epitome of that generation is what they call the 
horizontal heavyweights because the the Brits used to have their top guys. You know, when they fought a good American, they would get starched. It's obviously not the case anymore. It's kind of flipped <laughs> over because now there's the guys. You know, there's Tyson Fury, of course, and and uh, Anthony Joshua, Dillian White. They've had a whole slew of good quality heavyweights in recent years. Uh, I but don't the think, knocked, wait a minute. I've been following boxing for 35, 40 years. I never heard horizontal heavyweights until this. Oh, you, yeah. taught me, you taught me something, professional uh, Professor Rayfield, on that. I like that. But uh, the thing Bruno, is... Bruno was maybe in one of those categories because Tyson certainly put him horizontal then, and then even out of prison, he put him horizontal again. By the way, and you know measure. what? I made, a, I made a mistake as we've discussed this because I just realized it wasn't... He fought Michael Spinks, then he knocked out Bruno, but he actually still had one more fight after... Bruno before he fought Buster Douglas, and that was the KO one of uh, of uh, Carl the Truth Williams. Mm -hmm. So again, this is the Bruno fight. If if somebody said to you, "I want to watch Mike Tyson at his best," you say, "Go watch the Tony Tubbs fight, go watch the Spinks fight, go watch the Bruno fight, even the Carl Williams fight." Those three four fights right before the Douglas loss is that was the absolute dead peak domination wrecking ball Mike Tyson and. uh if you're a Tyson fan, how do you not go watch that Frank Bruno fight? That was sure. a, a big win. Now, he beat him again later on. And, you know, to Frank Bruno's credit, he actually was able to come back and win a world title, uh, even though it didn't last very long. Uh, but the fact that that's 34 years ago, again, as we talk about nostalgic type things, it blows my mind that it's that long ago because I remember watching it. And Bruno is still very much beloved, even to this oh, day, yeah. by the British fight fans in the British media, etc. Do we want to end on the down note of the anniversary of Nigel Benn and Gerald McClellan? Maybe we should... Uh, Gotta take the good with the bad, my man. But we should also turn this into a positive by the time we get to the end of it in terms of fundraising. But uh, the Dark Destroyer, uh, Nigel Benn, uh, big coming out for him, and the anniversary of that fight is also upon us as well when he beat Gerald McClellan. Well, I have mixed emotions about that fight, obviously. First of all, just as I forget, you know, not to say forget about it, but if you can put out of your mind for a quick minute what happened, which, and if you don't know, Gerald McClellan ended up in a coma, had a, a brain surgery, and has been, uh, he's still alive, but, you know, he is not, you know, he's just severely handicapped and needs 24-hour care by his family, and it's just been a real sort of tragic situation. But if you can stop the fight right before that terrible part happens, it was a spectacular fight. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is one of the great fights of the 90s, and it doesn't get that kind of credit from a lot of people because, for obvious reasons, of the very, very serious and severe uh, result of uh, Gerald McClellan be, you know, very badly injured because of what happened. But the fight itself was a great fight. These two guys were warriors. Uh, Nigel Ben was the WBC super middleweight champion. Uh, uh, Gerald McClellan from, uh, you know, out of the Kronk gym. Uh, he was the WBC's middleweight champion who moved up in weight to challenge for Ben's title. It was a big deal in the UK. Uh, it was televised here in the United States on Showtime. And it was an absolutely phenomenal fight. And the, 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 the tragedy of what happened, you know, I've thought about it often because whenever the fight comes up, especially in these days when you hear so much about Connor Ben and, you know, you think back to Nigel Ben, obviously he's well known for those two uh, big fights he had with Chris Eubank senior. But I always think when I think about Nigel Ben is the first thing that jumps to my mind is not the fights against Chris Eubank. It's the, the, the incredible fight. And then the very tragic situation of what occurred with Gerald McClellan. Now, Nigel Ben went on and continued his career, but I don't think he was ever really the same after that fight. We talk about, uh, we talk about Sabrina Matias with mm -hmm. what happened with Dadashev. Can a guy overcome that and still, you know, have that desire, that hunger, that, you know, so-called killer instinct. Uh, Sabriel Matias seems to still have that despite what happened. 
I'm not so sure that Nigel Ben ever truly had it, what he had going into the fight with uh, McClellan as what he did coming out of what occurred. I mean, I know that it, there's been documentary things and lots of stories written about it. He's talked about it. You know, it haunted him for a long time. And that just means you're a human being, uh, you know, to some regard, because you do have that sort of in the back of your mind. But it was a, a phenomenal fight. Um, uh, but he didn't really have that much uh, longer of a career. He fought a handful of times. He lost his last three fights, just a couple of fights after having defeated uh, Gerald. Um, the disappointing, the thing I think a lot of people remember about it, besides just the fact that Gerald was so badly injured in that fight, was the, and, and I understand what how this happens because you're caught up in the moment and you really don't have all the information. But on the Showtime broadcast, this was not obviously on Showtime in the UK, it was on, I believe, free television, ITV, which is sort of Britain equivalent of a, uh, you know, of a, uh, Fox uh, or uh, ABC or CBS mm -hmm. or NBC. Uh, in any event, you had uh, uh, Ferdy Pacheco, who at the time was the analyst for Showtime, just railing against Gerald McClellan for quitting in the fight, which obviously showed that Freddie uh, said the wrong thing because mm -hmm. he didn't quit. He was having a brain, you know, a, a, a brain injury. A brain that bleed. Yes. That was taking place. Yes. And he basically stopped fighting at that point. And, uh, you know, it was a very shameful thing. And and, and I, I don't remember if Freddie ever apologized for it, uh, which I felt like he should have. Um, and if he didn't, it doesn't surprise me because, uh, you know, Freddie Pacheco is one of my least favorite people in, that I've ever encountered in the sport of boxing. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't say that about a lot of people, but he was just not a nice guy, in my opinion. But, well, uh, and, and a lot of times it's a great lesson, and I do this with broadcasting all the time, and I advise younger broadcasters, don't, especially in situations with injuries, or much less in boxing, in situations like this, don't ever get ahead of it. Don't ever act like you know exactly what happened or what's going on, because then you're going to be horrified uh, later on if you find out that it is much more serious. And yeah, he was having a brain bleed in the fight, was basically what was going on, and then was brutally knocked out um, and never the same, had brain surgery and the debilitating injury. And now say this, because this is where you folks that are listening to us, you folks that read Dan on his Substack and on BigFightWeekend.com, you may be able to help out of, out of this, say something about this, because this, this is a family that is still in need. This was 28 years ago that this happened, and their, their medical bills have gone on for 30 years, basically, in caring for Gerald McClellan. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, look, his uh, Gerald McClellan, his sister, Lisa, has basically taken care of him uh, in the 20 plus years, 28 years, whatever it's been since this happened. Uh, and she has said this in interviews and things like that. It, it costs basically like $75,000 a year for his care, you know, you know, round the clock things, you know, he's not getting better as she has talked about, but he's not getting worse. He has very, very little short-term memory. He still remembers things about his boxing career. He doesn't apparently remember anything about the particular fight against Nigel Ben. But, you know, a lot of times in boxing, you know, we see them when they're in their peak, their prime. We watch Jake Paul. We watch you know, Sabrina Matias. We see the big fights, whether it's the heavyweight champions and, and all these big, big events. And, you know, and I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it because it's, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind. You don't think about what are these guys doing 25 years later and how has it impacted their life? They, you know. And I don't, don't get me wrong. They get in there of their own volition. They slug right. it out. They make a shitload of money and they put their life on the line, but it's their choice. Nobody forces them to do it and they do it. And I, I, you know, they say they do it for our entertainment, which is partially true, but they also do it to enrich themselves and for their own competitive spirit. But in, in, in the case of a guy like Gerald McClellan uh, that suffers a obviously life altering injury, you know, it does cost money. He's basically blind uh, yep. to, to keep it up anyway. 
not again, not to depress anybody, but if they want to help because the anniversary was there and it's the one time where a part of the year where it still comes to some people's minds, uh, that his, his sister Lisa has set up a GoFundMe page uh, for Gerald McClellan that can easily be found on the GoFund uh, website. And, uh, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks, a hundred bucks, whatever you can afford, you know, throw it their way and, uh, and, and, and help a, a boxer in need. Period. And I will say this uh, to everybody that's hearing us again, it's up to each individual, but there's nothing wrong with being human and helping out uh, fellow humans. And these are, uh, these are awful situations when you hear about them. And, and so people often ask, what can I do to help? Well, you're giving uh, a situation that has been, uh, bad for the McClellan family for 30 years. Really, it, it, it has been an awful situation for them with caring for Gerald in this case. So we're just singling out if you'd like to help. If you'd like to help, uh, as much as we are thrilled by fighters getting in the ring, it is a very dangerous thing. And this is a case, uh, the ultimate, we, we want to be mindful of this. The ultimate is if a fighter dies in the ring. That is horrific for anybody to have to go through. This is the next worst thing, which is, their life is over as they as we know it, but they're still I think alive. That's worse, and, there's, and maybe it is. It's a good I think point that's you make. Worse. And so these are the people around him that are trying to care for him. And in addition to making money to try to live off of themselves, they got to come up with money here when Gerald, and this is your point, wasn't a multi-million dollar fighter and doesn't have the money. And there's not a mechanism in place from the sport that's going to take care of him. So if you fight fans, I'm just saying, care to help, there's a way to help. There's now, a way to help his if you sister, choose. There you go. His sister in interviews has stated, I mean, he may have not made tremendous millions and millions, but at that point in his career when he had, had been a champion in middleweight division and was fighting on Showtime and on big pay-per-views, uh, not necessarily the main event, but on those shows, he made good money uh, in his career. But again, that's long exhausted 28 mm -hmm. years later. So, you know, what do you think he made? Helps. You may know. What do you think he made to fight Nigel Ben? Maybe a million dollars? Maybe. I don't know. The, I don't know what his purse was. But maybe. I mean, he may maybe he made, made that. Million. He yeah. maybe made that. And so again, as you just said, seventy-five thousand dollars a year is used up in like twelve or thirteen years off the million dollars from the Nigel Ben fight. Well, just, just, on, the, just on the just on just on the brain surgery and, yes. and all the immediate care after the uh, injury is uh, that can uh, mm -hmm. you know there's there's some help because there is insurance, but it doesn't cover nearly anything practically. Um, but, you know, you said about it's almost that the, there's the death, which is the worst. And then there's this situation, the, the the next worst. From my perspective, and I'm not wishing death on anybody that survived right. a traumatic brain injury in a boxing match or any kind of injury from any any reason. But in some ways, I have to think that being having that quote unquote life is almost worse than if you hadn't just, you know, passed in the next you know day or so after the incident. Uh, it would be very sad, but it, you're not being. Your family's not constantly reminded about it every single day that they have to care for you. So, you know, I understand both sides of that. It's just, it's a, it's a rough way to go to spend. And basically he's about, he's la he's lived as long as an, as, as a post fighter with this kind of injury, almost as long as he was alive. I don't remember the exact age he was. He might've been in his late twenties at the time mm -hmm. that he fought Nigel in the first place or thereabouts. So he's lived as long with the brain injury post the fight. And he had lived his entire life up to the point where the fight happened. And, uh, you know, and, and again, we're talking about it cause it's the anniversary and it was an awesome fight. I mean, again, if you can put the last, you know, few seconds out of your mind, um, it is what it is. It is. It's a brutal sport. We often say that. We take it for granted. We almost gloss over it. This is another reminder of it. You want to help the McClellans go to the GoFundMe, search it out, help them out, help them out. All right. With that, I think we're good with all the recaps, with everything that took place. Are you good for uh February? 
because we're going March to be talking about March. We're going to talk about March now. We're going to no, talk about no my March favorite Madness. month because it's a Reeves birthday every March. And it is also March Madness. And we also got some fights to discuss. So we got plenty to get to uh, in the coming days and the coming weeks. Anything oh, we else? Got, we got good fights coming up in March. Well, we got a good fight next week. Or, you know, or what people here this week, I guess, coming this Saturday with uh, Brandon Figueroa in uh, in uh, the fight against Mark. Max Yep. That's the Showtime main event. Later in the month, we got the big Showtime pay-per-view main event with uh, David Benavides against Caleb Plant, which is, a, I know, a fight a lot of people are looking forward to. And, you know, what do they say? Uh, things are picking up finally. Uh, I, I, so. I, I, don't, I don't know the exact uh, moment when they're going to announce everything, but uh, I, I fully expect now that the Ryan Garcia – and Tank Davis fight is papered and signed and agreed to and all set and sealed and delivered. Uh, that That is a big part of uh, the Showtime schedule for the spring into the summer, that they can finally put together their uh, announcement release uh, and outline their calendar that will probably take us from uh, the fight that's coming up I mentioned between Figueroa and McSayo. I believe that Showtime will announce uh, the bulk of their schedule that will take place between the rest of March all the way through probably June, perhaps into July, as they like to do to get that first half done. And uh, there'll be some good things on there. Uh, a few things we know about, a few. Uh, hopefully there's, I mean, honestly, I as much as I'd like to have all the, the intel and, and break all the stories and everything, you know, I, I get excited when I see a couple of things that are sort of unexpected. So I hope there's a couple of secret things in there that I don't know about. That makes it kind of like, uh, you know, if you're uh, opening up a, a, a wrapped up present for your birthday or, or Hanukkah or Christmas or something like that, where you don't know what it is and you're ple- pleasantly surprised. I'm kind of hoping that I might, I already may know there's a couple of the games. We get a couple that we don't know about. Here's all I know. Tyson Fury is like on the biggest um, uh, binge celebration right now because Tommy won the fight. He's a Manchester United fan, and they won their big match on Sunday in soccer. I was hoping for him to just go ahead and reveal, I'm going to fight Usyk, and here's where it is. Maybe we'll get that soon enough. Not done yet. It's not done yet, but we can hope. All right, on that note, uh, great stuff, Brother Rayfield. Have a great week. We always enjoy it here on the Fight Preach Unite recap. Thank you, my friend. All right, you bet, my man. There is Dan Rayfield. I'm merely TJ Reeves. Follow, subscribe right here to uh, the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed. That's where you get Fight Freaks Unite off the weekend, the recap podcast as we come your way. We preview going into the weekend. We recap coming off the weekend. Follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify to get more off the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed. For now, read Dan's Substack for more and also BigFightWeekend.com. For Dan Rayfield, I'm TJ Reeves. Have a great week.